to Mysteries and Mimosas. Thank you for joining us for today's episode. As promised, I'm going to run Max through some trivia. This week's case takes place in 1974, so here's some trivia to take you back in time. You know, to be fair, before we begin, uh, I wasn't alive in 74. I was alive in the 70s, um, but not 74, so this might be a little bit difficult. It's a challenge. Oh, listen You've to not, this. Hold on. You have not had a trivia yet pre-birth. Just saying, but go ahead. Oh, listen listen you got. to this, everyone. Max is already making excuses for when he loses trivia. Okay, we'll see. All right. Okay, Max, who became president of the United States after the Watergate scandal? Well. Was it? No. Do you want me no, to no, give no, you no, options? No, no. Oh. Let me see if I can get it first, and if I get it wrong, you can give me options. Okay. So President Nixon was the president during the Watergate scandal. Correct. Immediately following President Nixon, Gerald Ford was president. Wow, that's accurate. Is that accurate? Yeah, you yeah, just impressed me. <laughs> well, Everybody I mean, knows that. Okay. Okay, next. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Do you, do you have like stuff pulled up over there? Did no. you cheat at all? How, how could I possibly have pulled it up that quickly? I don't know. Watergate's easy. Well, Nixon, I know. Ford. I know Nixon. Done. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Question two. Go. Wow. What TV show premiered in 1974 on ABC and included characters named Arthur Fonzarelli, Potsy, and Ralph Melf? Really? I know. It's so easy. Go ahead. The Fonz. Yeah. Happy days. I know. That I knew that would give it away. The Fonzarelli, but I'm trying to be nice to you. You're no, never nice to me. Don't be nice. Go ruthless. All right. What was the cost of a first class stamp at the end of 1974? I would guess. Ooh, let me see. Sometimes you help. I help you out, so I'm going to ask for help. Is it less than ten cents? No. Is it ten cents? It's ten cents. Okay, now I'm creeped out, dude. You did. You no. Somehow I you. I swear to God, I didn't mm. look at anything. I swear to God, I'm just. What? Lucky. Oh my gosh! I'm lucky. I, I swear I didn't look. All right. At anything, I didn't. I wouldn't even know where to look. In fact, you yelled at me when I was even walking anywhere near you when you were researching your trivia. So man, I'm gonna have to do better. I'm gonna I'm gonna do this again next week, and I'm gonna have harder trivia. Oh, okay. I'm not done yet. We'll I'm not done oh. yet. Well, let's I mean, see if you can sweep this trivia. Oh well, now the pressure's on. Yeah, well, in 1974. Who beat Babe Ruth's home run record? Well, I'm not a baseball fan, so I wouldn't know that. But a buddy of mine today showed me a picture when he was on uh, an extradition trip in Las Vegas. He showed me a picture of Pete Rose. Oh, okay. Um, who beat his record? I don't know. Give me, give me uh, options. Options. All right. Catfish Hunter. Oh, I like Catfish Hunter. Steve Garvey. I was a catfish hunter once. Oh my gosh. Did you know? Hold on. Did you know a little trivia for you? Catfish can live for I think up to 60 days out of the water. They're able to get out of the water, travel by land to find a new water source to survive. I only knew that because you've told me that. But isn't it salmon do the same thing? Like they can get into like really shallow areas and go over the land to get into the water. They swim yeah, upstream. Probably. Yeah. Anyway, I don't think it's catfish, but go ahead. Second choice. Steve Garvey, Joe Morgan, or Hank Aaron? 
Hmm. I've only heard of Hank Aaron, but I'm going to go with Garvey. Ooh, should have gone with Hank Aaron. Hank Aaron? Yep. Ah. Yeah, sorry, just not a baseball fan. I mean, definitely not a historical baseball fan. So, yeah, hmm. it doesn't surprise me that I'd miss that one. But Are you like a stamp collector, though? Because you knew that answer. No, I just kind of <laughs> figured, I mean, when I was growing up, I remember stamps were like 20 cents. Hmm. So I'm just thinking... You know, a decade, take away 10. That's where I came up with 10 cents. Uh, okay. That's why I asked, was it less than 10 cents? Right. But, okay. So, is that it? No, we have, this is the last one. <sighs> okay. In May 1974, the minimum wage was set to what amount? Oh, man. Is it less than two seventy-five? Yes. A dollar ninety-five. No, more than that. More than a dollar ninety-five? Okay. Mmm... Two dollars and fifteen cents. Less than that. Okay, two dollars. <laughs> two dollars. Wow, I was close. I you was in the ballpark. Close. Yeah, two give it to dollars me. an hour. I give you pity points all the time. No. no, I still won. I mean, three out of five. Yeah, that's true. You did. Let's I'm move on. I'm gonna say three point five out of five. That's, no, you don't get to do the point. Like I try to give myself partial credit all the time, and you're like, nope. You either get the That's whole answer or you actually know. not accurate. I've always tried mm. to give you partial points and you pout. So, okay. Well, let's see. Next week. Who's pouting now? All right. Enough of that. Max, before we dive into this week's episode, what are we drinking today? So today's mimosa recipe is... Actually, it's really easy and I just came up with it on my own because I posted a really cool picture on Instagram and Facebook of the mimosas I made this weekend. This one... Right here is my favorite ingredient, champagne, obviously, <laughs> with, well, how do you say this, Bert blue carousel, carousel uh-huh. and a very small splash of cranberry juice. That was really so, good. Yeah, so a shot of, uh, I guess, you know, an ounce of uh, blue carousel, the rest champagne, and a splash of cranberry. Easy. Mm. Easy peasy. That's the mystery Monday no, no, it's no, not it's Mystery not Monday. Mystery. That is the Max Wins Trivia Mimosa. Okay. That's what I'm going to name it. I like it. It's actually really pretty, too. It's a really pretty blue color. Yeah. So, okay. What do you All have right. for us today? So, this week's episode begins in the summer of 1974 in Jacksonville, Florida. I love Florida, by the way. I know you do. I love St. Augustine, Florida. It's beautiful. Anyway... That summer into the fall, five young girls between the ages of 6 and 12 would go missing. Two of the girls' bodies would eventually be recovered, but there have been no arrests or convictions in any of the disappearances or murders. Mm. Okay. So we'll begin with the story of Jean Marie Schoen. I'm not actually sure how you say it. If it's, it's S-C-H-O-E-N. I'm not sure if it's Schoen or Schoen. I think it's Schoen. Schoen. She was affectionately called Jeannie by those who loved her. Oh. Jeannie was the first of the girls to disappear. On July 21st, 1974, on a hot and humid summer day, Jeannie left her grandmother's home to go to a local grocery store to purchase cigarettes for her Uncle Wayne. Jeannie and her brother Greg lived with their mother on the south side of Jacksonville, but would often visit their grandmother who lived along the I-95 corridor. Hannah's food store was located at 17th and Pearl Streets, approximately two blocks from Jeannie's grandmother's home, which was located on West 19th Street. 
So different time, right? For sure. Yeah, I was just going to say that. I mean, so she, the, who sent her away again? So she, her, she went to the store to get cigarettes for her uncle. For her uncle. So, mm-hmm. her, do, <clears throat> so her uncle sent her to the store? Yeah. Yeah, definitely a different time. I think that, you know, now I don't even trust, you know, when, when our daughter was nine years old, I never even trusted her to walk outside and play catch by herself. I know. <laughs> you, you, know? you are very much helicopter dad. Yeah, I mean, she, you know, she was always, you know, playing with the softball, throwing it up in the air and stuff. And I always had to make her go to the back where people can't see her. So yeah, I, it is a different time. And I don't know if that's because I'm hyper aware based on the uh, sex crimes that I investigate, but I definitely would never send her to the bus stop alone at nine years old, let alone the grocery store or the corner store to get a pack of cigarettes. Well, crazy enough that at nine years old, you could go buy a pack of cigarettes to begin with, right? Yeah, I'm guessing that the store owners probably knew the uncle and that was pretty regular. I remember in high school, our gym teacher would send us to uh, the this uh, grocery store to go buy cigarettes for him. Wow. <laughs> yeah, actually it wasn't cigarettes. It was uh, chewing tobacco. Oh, okay. Yeah, but... You know, he would, he'd give us money and we, he'd say, Hey, you know, run down to the stores only like four blocks, maybe three blocks away from the gym. And and we'd pick him up his tobacco and bring it back to him. Wow. And they never questioned anything because you just said, you know, Hey, it's for uh, our gym teacher. Interesting. Yeah. So I don't know, you know, what, was it so, I mean, was child abduction and murder and all these things, was it really less prevalent then than it is now? Or do you think now we're just hyper aware because we have access to news 24-7 on our phones, on our social media, we're constantly getting Amber Alerts and we're inundated with all of this information. Do you think it just seems more prevalent now because of that? No, I think it's a, it's a multitude of things. Um, number one... Yes, we are more aware of it because of the news articles and more reporting and everything. Um, and social media makes information so much more readily available to us than it, than it once was. I mean, I'll be honest with you. I always kind of wonder, I don't mean to get off topic, but I always wonder, why are we not smarter than we are? We have everything in the world at our fingertips, literally on a on a handheld device, and yet we get stupider as a human <laughs> race. I mean, if you think about it, you probably even notice yourself just getting worse at grammar the more that you text because you use shortcuts and you use autocorrect and you use, you know, yeah. auto-suggestion. Um, but no, I think that it's definitely a culmination of the information that's readily available at our fingertips that makes us more aware. But also, I think that it's more dangerous for kids these days because of the social media aspect. It's easier to connect to predators. Mm. It's easier for predators to find children online who are looking for that connection because it's easy to have a conversation with a stranger when you're not looking at them face to face, even for an introvert. Right. And so it's easier for a predator to have that access to those children and those children to fall prey because that person's not real until they're picking them up or coming to kidnap them or coming to Right. Pick them up from school, whatever the case may be. You know, in 1974, we didn't have Snapchat with Quick Ad. We didn't have Instagram. We didn't have the ability to send an Uber to a child's house to pick them up. So while law enforcement obviously had 
a much more difficult time solving cases back then. They weren't investigating the same cases we have now. And what I mean is, you know, not every cam, not every uh, house had a doorbell camera. Not every house had uh, sur- security surveillance systems. They couldn't ping cell phones. They couldn't, you know, we were disconnected in a way that made it more difficult to investigate crime. Whereas today, yes, it's a little bit easier, but we're also faced with bigger challenges with that social media aspect. Okay. So on the flip side of that, I'll play devil's advocate here. So yes, social media has made it easier maybe for predators to prey on our children. But think about 1974 and the lack of supervision with kids. They were being sent to the store because it was just assumed it was safe. They were allowed to go out and play all day until the streetlights came on. And their parents might probably didn't know where they were during all those hours. So didn't predators have just as much, much access to kids back then in that aspect? I don't think so, because I think they have just as much access now, if, if that's what we're talking about, as they do, as they did back then. And the reason I say that is because, yes, I, my curfew was nightfall. When the streetlights came on, I did have to come home. I rode my bike all over town with my friends, without my friends, and my mom never knew where I was. I don't necessarily think that's bad parenting. I just think that's the way that it was because that's probably the way that she was raised. But the reason I, I say it's not you know, more dangerous then because kids were out more is because I just pay attention when I'm driving anywhere, and kids are still walking to high school. Hmm. Kids are still walking to elementary school. I can pass kids at the park that are unsupervised that are way too young to be out by themselves. Not only that, but if you look at any given bus stop, there's kids out there that I know leave their house without a coat, Mm -hmm. you know, so they forget, you know, cell phones. We can track them with cell phones. They forget things. And so, no, I think it's a lot easier nowadays than it was back then. But, But you're right. It is a good point. It was easy then, too. All right. So diving back into our story. So Jeannie was given money by her uncle to run down about two blocks to the grocery store to buy some cigarettes. Jeannie arrived at Hannah's food store and purchased the cigarettes, but when she left, she forgot to take the pack of cigarettes with her. Jeannie returned to the store a short time later and picked up the cigarettes. Jeannie told the store clerk she planned to take the change left over from her purchase to play pinball at a local arcade called The Hangout. When Jeannie hadn't returned to her grandmother's home approximately 15 minutes later, her grandmother sent Jeannie's brother Greg to look for her. Greg was unable to locate Jeannie, so her uncle Wayne drove around looking for her. Wayne was unable to locate Jeannie either, but found out that she had actually arrived at Hannah's and purchased the cigarettes and then left in the direction of her grandmother's home. The owner of the hangout reported that he saw Jeannie, and he told her the arcade was closed because he had just cleaned the floors. He told Jeannie to return when the floors were dry. Two of Jeannie's friends said they were all hanging out at a laundromat near the Winn-Dixie in Springfield when a man they didn't know approached them on a blue bicycle. The man grabbed Jeannie and took her into a nearby bathroom. When the two of them reappeared from the bathroom, Jeannie was crying. The man then took Jeannie and rode away with her on his bike. Jeannie's friends tried to chase after the man, but they were unable to keep up. 
They reported to police that Jeannie didn't scream or try to get away from the man. Interesting. So they, the kids watched him grab her and take her into the bathroom. It doesn't say, your research doesn't say how long no. they were in the bathroom? No. Just says that he grabbed her, took her into the bathroom, and then when she came back out, she was crying, but didn't scream or try to get away from him. So well, She didn't uh, scream because she was scared. Right. So can I give you my opinion on what happened in that bathroom? I have a feeling if I say no, you're going to do it anyway. I, I am going to. Okay. So what I think happened, again, I don't know how long they were in the bathroom. I think he's a guy on a bicycle. He sees a little girl that he wants to take. It's going to be kind of hard. It's in the middle of the day. She's surrounded by friends. They're right next to a grocery store. So I think... He's thinking he needs to grab her, take her into this bathroom really quick, and tell her, look, you have to come with me. If you try to get away or you scream or you make a scene, I'm going to hurt you or hurt your friends or hurt your parents, whatever he told her to threaten her. That's why when she came out of the bathroom, I think she was crying because she was scared, but she didn't want to make a scene because she was afraid of what he would do. So that, I think, was his ploy to be able to get her on his bike and ride away. I mean, because he's on a bicycle. All her friends have to do is go into that store, get an adult, and say, look, this guy's trying to take our friend. And I don't think he was in the bathroom for an extended period of time because, I don't know, if I'm nine years old and some random guy comes and takes my friend into the bathroom within a really short time, I'm going to start being worried and being like, well, I'm going to go in there and check on her or I'm going to go get an adult. So I think whatever happened was really quick. Yeah, it's possible. I mean, all we know is that that she was taken, dragged into the bathroom by this man on a bicycle, and then she came out crying. So depending on how long she was in there, I think you're right. If it was a short amount of time, which makes more sense, then yeah, he probably did do something to scare her and terrify her, which is why she would come out crying. Or, you know, it doesn't take long for, uh, you know, a predator to to sexually abuse a child. It doesn't take long at all. I remember a specific case that actually happened this year where this person was um, suspected in multiple jurisdictions of, of touching little girls. And one of the jurisdictions had video footage of him in a play area. He took his kid to this play area. It's like a, I don't know, like a bounce house has a bunch of arcade stuff, you know, in this particular area where he did it was in a a ball pit. And the video was so tremendously fast that you would miss it. And the only thing that happened was he was in the ball pit and he came out a very short time later and the kid came out a very short time later and the kid was crying. So, Yeah, I think either scenario is definitely likely. Either way, that poor little girl was terrified. The one thing I think we can agree on, though, is his actions, whether it was in the bathroom or after, or both, was probably had everything to do with sex assault on a child. Oh, I'm sure. I don't think that he just kidnapped her to have her. No. That's not a, a typical action. No, not at all. So, Jeannie's friends described the man as a white man with light-colored hair that looked like Elvis Presley's hair. There's no indication that Jeannie ran away willingly. Jeannie was a student at Love Grove Elementary School and made good grades. Jeannie was also involved in the local brownie troupe. 
Jeannie's mother, Pamela, took out ads in the Jacksonville Journal asking for Jeannie's return. One of the ads reads as follows. This is a plea from Jeannie's mother to whomever has my daughter. I know you have her because you also wanted a little girl to love, but I love her desperately. Need her returned to me, please. No arrests or convictions have ever occurred in Jeannie's case, and she's never been seen again. What do you think about that mother's plea? Well, I think... I think two things. I think it's heartbreaking, for one. And for two, I think it's a little naive to think that he wanted to take take her to, to, love, to love her. To love know? her as much as she did? Yeah. I think, I think maybe that might be easier for her to think of that than what could have possibly been the motive, right? Yeah, I think so. And, and it is heartbreaking. It is very sad. And, you know, maybe that is her way of dealing with you know, the reality that her daughter is gone and most likely, you know, it wasn't a very good um, time for her. And maybe that's her way of just kind of disassociating from the fact that, you know, it's a very terrible situation and she's just hoping that it's the best. Yeah. Jeannie was nine years old at the time of her disappearance with blonde hair and green eyes. She was four feet, two inches tall and approximately 55 pounds at the time of her disappearance. Jeannie was also missing a front tooth at the time. Jeannie was last seen wearing a dark blue shirt with red trim, blue shorts, and blue shoes. Just a couple of weeks later, on August 1st, 1974, six-year-old Milette Anderson and her 11-year-old sister Lillian, who went by Annette, would go missing from their Ocean Way neighborhood home on the north side of Jacksonville. At approximately 6 p.m. that evening, the girl's mother, Elizabeth, and their older sister, Donna, left home to go care for a sick relative. The girl's father, Jack, was expected to arrive home from his job as a commercial fisherman at 7 p.m. Jack was delayed about 20 minutes due to an issue with his boat motor, so he called the girls at 7 p.m. to let them know. Jack reported everything seemed normal, but he did note that the family dog was barking in the background. Annette assured her father that the dog was just barking at some birds in the front yard. Hmm. When a worried Jack called the girls to check on them again at 7.20, nobody answered the phone. Investigators believe the girls were taken sometime within those 20 minutes. That's really creepy. That's really creepy, and that's really, really sad. Mm -hmm. Because, man, you can just, you know, I'm sure that dad just replays it time and time again in his head that, some you know the dog was barking and you know he wished that he would have known what was happening yeah i'm sure you know unbeknownst to any of them that dog was barking because whoever took them was out outside at that time when they were talking to their dad on the phone when jack arrived home the girls were nowhere to be found the doors of the home were closed but unlocked there was no sign of forced entry Jack found the family dog locked in a back bedroom of the home. The dog was normally allowed to roam freely around the house. Nothing was missing from the home except for Milette's favorite baby doll, which she carried everywhere. Neighbors reported seeing a white car in the driveway of the Anderson home sometime between 6 and 7 p.m., but didn't see anything suspicious, and nobody saw the girls leave the home. According to an article in the First Coast News, the girl's sister Donna said whoever took the girls must have locked the dog up in the bedroom because he would have tried to attack the kidnapper as he was very attached to Annette. 
Donna also said she believes whoever took her sisters must have had a plan in place because the family lived on a secluded road. So it sounds like, I mean, they had neighbors, obviously, but it sounds like it was a secluded area where somebody wouldn't just happen by. Like, they would have had to have known there was a house down there with yeah. two little girls. It, it's odd to me because I don't know that her mom and sister had planned to leave that night to go care for a sick relative. Um, obviously, whoever took them wouldn't have known that their dad was delayed 20 minutes either, right? Because that was just right. a freak accident. Something happened with his boat motor, so that's the only thing that delayed him from being home at the time they were taken. So so I don't know. I don't know how planned out it could have been. Do you think it's possible that somebody close to the family showed up expecting to meet with dad and found dad not there? Because he was delayed. But so they came to meet meet dad and then yeah, because, took the girls instead? Right. Maybe maybe it's somebody you, you said it's down a secluded road. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. The girls were definitely not planning to be there alone at that time. Right. Dad was expected dad to be there. Been home. Right. Should have been there. Mm-hmm. Um Obviously, there's nothing here to indicate that dad had anything to do with it. He cooperated with police and he provided a really, really excellent timeline. Right. What I'm saying is this didn't just happen by accident. So either somebody was watching the house and knew that these girls were home alone. And that I think it's somebody close to the house. It's either a neighbor, somebody in the neighborhood, you know, who had been watching them and they took advantage of a situation where these girls were home alone. Yeah. I mean, they had to have been watching because they watch mom leave and expect dad home at a certain time. He doesn't show up. So they take that opportunity, I guess. I, I don't know. Yeah. Or like I said, or it's close, somebody close to the family that was there to see the family, you know, meet with dad maybe or meet with mom maybe or both of them, you know, a family friend who was anticipating seeing dad there from his fishing trip. And then, you know, all of a sudden they're not there because this seems like either, I know it's kind of a weird thing to say because it's like the obvious, right? But it seems like either a crime of opportunity, meaning they were expecting dad to be there and he wasn't. So they had the opportunity to take these girls Mm -hmm. or somebody who was planning it. Right. It's, It's one of those two, obviously. I mean, there's not really other option, but, um, but I guess what you're saying is it could be either way. Could, could have been it could planned. definitely be either way. Yeah. And I think that the dog being locked in the in the uh, back room, that's that's curious to me because it doesn't make sense to me that the bad guy would lock the dog in the back room for fear of being attacked by the dog. Wouldn't the dog attack him when he was locking him in the back room? So that's why I think maybe it was somebody that the family knew because maybe they said, hey, is your dad home? Mm. no not yet he should be home anytime now oh well i'll just come in and wait go ahead you know the dog's scary so lock him in the back room the girls locked the dog in the back room is what i'm saying could be yeah and it it could be that they you know the dog was barking and they wanted to shut it up and the and the doorbell rang or that you know there was a knock on the door so they knew they had to secure the dog in order to answer it it could be yeah there's a there's a lot of possibilities there so unfortunately mylette and annette have never been seen again And Jack and Elizabeth passed away without ever knowing what happened to their daughters as the case has gone cold. 
Interesting, though, a serial killer known as the Casanova Killer, Paul John Knowles, reportedly said he killed two little girls matching Milette and Annette's description and then buried them in a rural area on the west end of Commonwealth Avenue. Investigators searched that area, but they didn't find anything. Please don't believe Knowles killed the girls and that he provided a false confession just for the shock value of it. Knowles has been tied to 18 murders across seven states in a four-month span in 1974. Knowles claimed to have been involved in as many as 35 murders, but police again think he's embellished some of those numbers. Knowles was killed in a shootout with a Georgia Bureau of Investigation agent in that same year of 1974. Oh, he's a nice guy. Yeah, he shot a, he actually shot a sheriff's deputy. And then the GBI agent shot him and killed him. Did the deputy die? No, not, I don't believe so from what I read. So do you, but police don't think that he, his confession is real. No, I guess there were just things that he said that didn't really add up or make sense. So they they don't believe he did it. And then they went to search the area where he claims to have buried them and nothing was ever found. Well, there's a lot to be said about false confessions, you know. And I pride myself on my interview and interrogation skills. I know it doesn't sound like it because I'm not the most well-spoken person, but when I have an interview... I'm actually pretty good at just detecting deception and picking up on people's, you know, what they say and how they say it, particularly the vocabulary that they use. And I've had people where I know that they're lying to me, but they don't want to tell me the truth. And I've had people say, you know what? Fine. I'm just going to tell you I did it because that's what you want to hear. Well, that's not a confession. That's that's just somebody playing semantics and playing games. And so my response is always, nah, it's not good enough for me. I want to know the truth. That's all I care about is the truth. I don't care one way or the other if the person I'm investigating did it or not. I never care. I only seek the truth. And I think it's important for anybody who wants to get into law enforcement or anybody that is finding themselves doing this job and interviewing people, it's always about the truth. It's never about the confession. I tell people, victims, in fact, I tell them all the time when I talk to them, I say, hey, look, here's the deal. If this person that's accused did this and the evidence points that way and the investigation reveals that they did it, then I'm going to put 100% of my effort into making sure that this person pays the consequences, is held accountable for their actions. Conversely, though, if the evidence doesn't support it and I believe that this person is innocent and they didn't do it, I'm going to put just as much effort to clear their name. And I think that's important and people lose track of that. Well, I think maybe I got off on a tangent. What I was actually going to say was I think there's something to be said for false confessions. And I think it's important for people to pay attention if you're in this field to the warning signs of those false confessions. And there's a multitude of reasons. This guy obviously did it for notoriety or whatever it is. Um, Maybe he just wanted to be a pain in the ass to these detectives and, you know, throw them off because they know how important it is and how much work goes into it. But I want to tell you a funny story. Early on in my law enforcement career, a colleague of mine, his name was Martin. He uh, was investigating a, a theft case. So this lady was um, very wealthy and she hired some people, some actual Mexican migrant workers to do some work on her house. And... At that time, 
she calls the police and she says, yeah, they had access to my house. I let them use the restroom and everything. And, and my jewelry is gone. They stole my jewelry. So Martin, uh, goes in and, you know, takes a statement from her and he ends up bringing them in for questioning. So Martin pulls one of them into the interview room and spends entirely too long interviewing this guy. And, um, eventually this guy confesses to stealing the jewelry from this lady's house books him into jail and within i think it's only a couple hours the lady calls back and says hey sorry for the confusion but i found my jewelry wasn't where i thought it was so false confessions happen and so i'm not saying whether i believe this guy or not but obviously whatever he said to the police at that time they believed he was full of it you know i can actually talk about interview and interrogation forever And one of my favorite things to do is to pay attention to those words that people use. And it's, it's so subtle. You can do it with your children when they're talking about stuff from memory, they're using a different part of their brain than when they have to create a lie. Mm. And so when you are questioning them and you're talking to them, it might be something so simple as they are recalling stuff in past tense. And then when they get to the lie, they start talking in present tense. And although it, it seems very, very minute or natural, or maybe you think it's the way that you would talk, it's not the way that we talk. When we recall memory, we always talk in the past tense. Which is exactly why our daughter hates <laughs> sometimes being our daughter, because we always see right through her BS. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's as simple as um, when you say... You know, just for instance, I remember one time when I was ran through trivia and I killed it. Versus when I tell a lie, I might say, yeah, I'm sitting in my chair and I'm defeated because Arya's um, trivia nonsense is just so powerful that I was so defeated. You can see a little bit of present tense mixed with past Mm -hmm. tense, and that's how you start picking up on those little things. The only thing I picked up on in that whole thing was my nonsense trivia. <laughs> I'm actually no, actually your trivia was really really tough and I I'm just so proud of is. myself. There it is folks, a false confession. <laughs> <laughs> there it is. Yeah, I'm uh, trying to be nice. Anyway. No, your trivia was great. Thank you for putting me through your trivia. I am Sorry that I do better than you at it. Maybe next week's better. I mean, I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. Okay. What else we got here? All right. Continuing on. Milet Josephine Anderson was six years old when she disappeared and would be 52 years old today. She's described as a white female, four feet tall and 50 pounds with blonde hair and blue eyes. Milet has a heart condition and asthma and requires medication if she becomes too excited. Annette was 11 years old when she disappeared and would be 56 years old today. Annette is described as a white female, 4 feet 4 inches tall, and about 60 pounds with brown hair and blue eyes. Annette is her middle name, remember, and it's the name she goes by, but her first name is actually Lillian. Annette does have a thyroid condition and requires daily medication. If you have any information at all about Jeannie, Milette, or Annette, please contact the Jacksonville Police Department at 904-630-1157. So you think these are connected? I don't 
don't know. I mean, we're talking about five little girls between the ages of 6 and 12 going missing within like a three to four month period, all from the same city. So I've heard and read that investigators might not necessarily think they're connected because they're all in different areas of the city. But I also read that the original detective, the lead detective on the very first case, on Jeannie's case, when he was investigating that and as these other little girls disappeared, he actually made a note in the case file with all the other little girls' names, just kind of as like a, hey, you know, I'm not getting anywhere with this case. If it eventually goes cold and ends up, you know, what are we, four decades now later, I want the investigator that picks up this file to know that there are also four other little girls that went missing in this same time span. So whether that meant that he thought they were actually connected or not, I think it's interesting that he at least made that note in his case file to say, hey, you might want to look at all these other cases too. They may have some kind of correlation. Yeah, that's interesting. And I like it. I work um, really closely with a cold case detective, phenomenal detective, very, very smart. And um, I love him to death. He's a great guy. And, you know, I just like to hear his stories from the cold cases that he does or that he investigates because He's told me stories like, oh, my God, you'll never believe this. I was going through, you know, boxes of files from the 80s, and I found evidence just sitting in a in a manila envelope. It's never booked into evidence, and now I have to, you know, book it back into evidence or do this or do that. And so just those little notes are pretty awesome to, to look back on. It's like almost like a time capsule where you just pick it up where it was left off. Right. Like and, he never – maybe he never thought, like, this case would go – I'm sure he hoped that this case wouldn't go four decades without resolution, but in the event that it did, he's like, I'm going to, I'm going to notate this for these future detectives to say, Hey, look, don't forget there's these other four cases and they might actually all be related. Yeah. And it's always interesting to have a whole new set of eyes on it because, you know, like, like I've said in past episodes, everybody has a different perspective of everything. You, you and I may witness a crime and you're going to have a completely different witness statement than mine because we all perceive things differently. And so that's why cold cases are just so fascinating because you can pick it up and have a completely different perspective and thought process than the three other detectives that had it before you. Exactly. I like it. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, I think you did a really good job taking control. I'm just going to take a back seat from now on. So now the only thing that you have to do is update our Instagram, update our Facebook, our website and everything else. Oh, and produce this episode and we should be all set. Negative. I know, I know how to do none of those things. Now I can figure out the social media, but beyond that, I'm, I'm just good at putting together some nonsense trivia for Max. No, it's not nonsense. I told you it's very, very tough. I think that probably, no, I would say probably 94% of our listeners knew that. Yeah, okay. It was easy. If you're listening and you got Nixon and Gerald Ford right off the bat like I did, you are probably a product of the 70s and 80s. (laughs) All right. Anyway, uh, join us next week as we discuss the cases of the other two girls, Virginia Helm and Rebecca Green, who were kidnapped from the Jacksonville area in September and October of 1974. 
And don't forget to visit us at mysteriesandmimosas.net. There you'll find photos of the missing girls, which include age progression photos. We have also posted a photo of serial killer John Knowles, along with our source material for this episode. And if anybody has a 1974 10 cent forever stamp, please upload a picture of that. I'd like to make that my profile picture. So he can gloat about it. Okay. Um, Anything else? I don't think so. Thank you for listening and please drop us a line. And lastly, I really would love for you to send us pictures drinking mimosas out of those dragon glassware cocktail glasses. Absolutely. We'd love to see that. So if there's nothing else. Done, son. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.